All right. Hey guys, this is Justin and this is class six, I think it is, <laughs> of RCAA. Uh, you know, actually I think I have it hidden in the header up here somewhere. If it'll show it to me, uh, it's not going to show it to me, whatever. Um, I think it's class six. Anyway, this is scripture and tradition. So this is actually kind of a follow-up from last class. And if you recall, in the last class, we talked about the church and where it came from, um, Jesus establishing it, giving it authority, um, that authority being passed on through apostolic succession, um, the apostolic successors, the bishops, the episcopoys being the uh, successors of the apostles, uh, Peter amongst the apostles being given a preeminent authority as shown in a number of ways, being named first all the time, given the keys to the kingdom, uh, being told specifically by Jesus he was going to pray for him, always being listed first. Um, um, and then we saw, you know, even the early church fathers for the first 200, 300 years of Christianity and beyond recognized the authority of Peter and his successors, uh, as well as church councils and everything else. So hopefully that all is pretty clear. This is kind of, uh, if this is a one-two punch of understanding the church, this is the two, right? This is the second half. And it's understanding the interplay of scripture and tradition. Scripture is very, very, very important. As Catholics, um, we have spent the last 2,000 years, the church has spent it. Uh, protecting the scriptures, um, writing them, editing them, compiling them, copying them, reading them, proclaiming them. Um, a lot of times, I think our Protestant brothers and sisters have this notion that Catholics don't like scripture. Um, and it's true that many don't know it very well, but that's true of, you know, people in all walks of life. So that's not really a, a, a true or accurate description. But so this is kind of part two. And the, the real hallmark, if I were to sum this whole class up, um, the real takeaway is that scripture is a part of tradition and apart from tradition, you can't have scripture. Um, if you've seen some of the other videos I put on this channel, I've actually discussed this at length in a few other videos, um, but we're going to kind of make the whole, uh, lay out the whole argument here. So. Here's the highlights. Um, well, first off, here's a quote from Benedict XVI, uh, who is uh, now the Pope Emeritus. Wherever sacred scripture is removed from the living voice of the church, it becomes a victim of the experts' disputes. And that's very much the case. When people start treating scripture as though, you know, whoever has the best interpretation or their own personal interpretation, you know, as long as they can defend it, it's totally legit and fine and everything else. You know, you start to make scripture into a thing that people just get into academic disputes over um, because they've, they've prescinded it from um, the public interpretation of the church. And we're going to see that Paul ex or uh, Peter actually uh, expressly forbids you to do that. Uh, not that you can't read the scriptures or you shouldn't read the scriptures or read them on your own, come to know them and everything else. That's a, it's a great thing to do, but all Always, um, our interpretation of the scriptures is um, subject to, I guess, um, or submissive to um, the uh, interpretation and the teaching of the church, which is to say, and there's, there's a lot of places in scripture the church hasn't set a thing on, right? And there's lots of places where you can have multiple interpretations. All of that's fine, but there are certain things that once they've been proclaimed, we simply can't deny them. So for instance, um, Arius would use uh, the heretic who denied that Jesus was fully God. He would use the scriptures to, to make his case, right? And you can make a case that Jesus isn't fully God uh, from the scriptures. Lots of other uh, Christian or pseudo-Christian groups do this, right? Um, but the church has protected and defended and defined uh, who Jesus is, his nature, his essence, and everything else. Um, and so always our interpretations of scriptures uh, can't go contrary to that truth that has been passed down through the living history, the living tradition of the church. 
And that truth, again, is going to include the scriptures themselves, which we'll see. So um, highlights of this class, the Protestant tradition of Sola Scriptura is a man-made tradition, and it led to a revolution that destabilized Christianity, causing it to fracture and to faction. If you remember, um, I think I have in this picture as well, I, I think I put it in the notes for last week, uh, that picture of like the rock and then all these little divisions, you know, kind of crumbling off of it. Well, that's really kind of an accurate picture of what happened inside of Christianity uh, once people accepted the idea of, of Sola Scriptura. All of a sudden you had, you know, one man reforming the church or seeking to reform. And all of a sudden you had five and then 10 and then 50 and then a hundred. And today, depending upon whose numbers you use, it's anywhere from 300 to 33,000 or beyond, right? Uh, different denominations preaching uh, and teaching and proclaiming that they have the, the truth uh, as revealed by God or denying that the truth is even knowable, which I think is uh, equally problematic. So. Um, the, the concept of soul scripture is not found in the Bible, which is uniquely problematic since it says everything that you believe must be found in the Bible. Um, and in fact, other things not found in the Bible, as you probably heard me say in the past is the, the canon of scripture, right? The list of books that belong in the Bible is not in the Bible. So that right there points that there must be some other external force, uh, or external authority that can give you that sort of answer. Uh, since it's not found in scripture. Uh, we do believe scripture is theonustos, which is God breathed or inspired, um, which means it's inerrant, right? God is inspiring the men to write it. And so it is a unique form of positive revelation, uh, utterly unique in the church. And in fact, as Catholics, we hold it in the highest regard. Um, and the canon of the scripture is itself spirit protected from being incorrect, uh, which is part of what falls under the purview of the church. Um, and so here's, this is a fun little uh, comic I found once. It's actually in Portuguese. Um, but it kind of gives the idea of the uh, the threefold division of the Catholic Church. You have the Bible, the scriptures, you have tradition, and the magisterium. And so this is a Catholic, and this is a Protestant who's trying to stand on a just one leg of the stool, right? The Bible, Biblia. And so it says, Cal uh, banquinto imas estevaldo, which stool is the most stable, or which which stable, which stool is most stable, which chair is most stable. Uh, and then so you have the, the Catholic with the three legs, right? Scripture, tradition, and the church. So scripture is scripture, tradition is like the living, passing on understanding of the church, and the magisterium is still the, the living embodiment of the successors of the apostles who are continuing to help author and protect uh, that sacred tradition. Uh, out of which flows the sacred scriptures uh, versus the, the Protestant who simply takes the book runs and says, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> and then they come to different uh, opinions. Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, uh, there am I in their midst. The problem is uh, with the concept of sola scriptura, wherever two or three are gathered in his name and they have differing opinions, you have two or three different churches all of a sudden. And I've talked to a lot of, and I've heard a lot of um, Protestants who, who wind up becoming Catholic, including ministers um, who left their jobs in ministry to become Catholic. Marcus Grodi uh, has a really great uh, long running series called, uh, the coming home network on EWTN. And then he interviews people who became Catholic, uh, many of them leaving, you know, positions as Protestant clergy, uh, Protestant pastors, depending. And, you know, they had to abandon everything. They, they had to do it. But what they said, a lot of them had said is, is they just kept seeing the church splinter and break. And, you know, people would start their own church and it was great for the first generation. And then, you know, the, the children of the next would, would take over or new management command or new pastor would come in and, and it would split. I talked to a guy who said, he's just a, a small town Lutheran church. And, you know, sometimes the pastor wouldn't be there. He's like, Oh, you know, I'm going to have a, uh, a different priest or different, uh, homilist come in next week. And, and usually attendance was really low on that day because it almost was a cult of personality. Whereas as Catholics, we go because we're experiencing Jesus in the Eucharist. So anyway, all of that to be said, um, 
why give a scripture in the first place? Because that's an important question, right? Um, what What is scripture? How do we understand it? The church teaches, first off, that it's possible to know God apart from the scriptures. And St. Paul even says this as well. He says, uh, you know, the Gentiles who don't have the law, they're not under the law of Moses. Nevertheless, you know, they're a law unto themselves, he says. Um, he says they, they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences also bear witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, other times defending them because they either know or they're, they're ignorant, right? Uh, and this will take place on the day when God judges people's secret thoughts through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so basically what Paul is saying, and he says elsewhere in Romans as well, that, uh, you know, the, the, the heavens declare the, the glory of God, right? So we can have knowledge of God, um, simply through experience of the world, simply through reasoning. Um, some of the great pagan philosophers, your, your Aristotles, um, and even, uh, you know, Muslim and, and Jewish philosophers, right? Uh, Maimonides and Avicenna, Verwees, who, who are building on the tradition of Plato and Aristotle. Um, you know, they all said you can argue with certainty to the existence of God. Um, but you can, you can argue only so far, right? You can get to his existence and you can know certain things about him. St. Thomas does this in the Summa, uh, I think pretty convincingly. Uh, most people who really engage in the Summa and understand what he's doing say yeah, it's you know, it's far more complex than most people think and, and far more comprehensive than most people think um but you can only reason so far right so you can intuit that god exists um you can intuit certain things about the moral law um but you could never reason to the incarnation right you could never reason to god became flesh. And in fact, uh, I believe it's Aristotle, and I think it was in the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, at one point, he laments that man desires friendship and above all desires friendship with God. And so man ultimately is designed to be dissatisfied, says Aristotle, because he can't be a friends with God. Um, lo and behold, two or three hundred years after Aristotle, God becomes man and makes his dwelling upon us, uh, among us, as, as John says in his gospel. So literally what Aristotle longed for, um, happened, <laughs> um, which I think is great. Uh, and, and it's, you know, revelations like that, even in the, the mouths of, of, of Gentiles, of non-believers, of pagans, uh, you know, God, he loves everybody. Uh, he wants everyone to be reconciled. That was that promise all the way back in the beginning to bring reconciliation to the entire world through the woman and her seed. And that's exactly what the church is here to do. Um, and this is echoed even in Judaism. That's why Solomon builds the, uh, the, the court of the nations, whatever it's called is the, the, the court that Jesus drives the money changers out of. That was actually part of the temple reserved for non-Jews to come in and worship the one true God of, of Israel. So literally even in the old Testament, this was part of it, right? And God oftentimes speaks speaks through and uses uh, pagans. You have your, your rulers of Assyria and Babylon and, and, and whatnot. Um, and he uses them for his own purposes. Um, but sometimes they even are given to utter some sort of a prophetic word. Even, even Caiaphas, the high priest, right? Utters prophetic words as he's condemning Christ. So God, God works through so many people in, in so many different ways. Um, and so, you know, I, I've heard some people make arguments for atheism to say, well, I think atheism is the, the default position of human beings, but 95% of the world believes in God. Um, I think it's really hard to say the default position uh, of people across all places and times and everything else is is atheism. Uh, and so as Paul is saying, you know, the, the, the desire for God, the knowledge of God is written on our hearts. Lewis puts it, C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, you know, if I find in myself a desire uh, <laughs> that nothing in this world can satisfy, then that tells me I'm, I'm built for some something beyond this world. And, uh, you know, again, so literally all of these things show us that we can reason to some knowledge about God. The problem is 
only those with a certain disposition to really logically follow out rigorously these arguments for the existence of God are going to have the time to do this or are going to have the ability to do this. Only people with lots of leisure, uh, oftentimes it was priests or the wealthy, would, would even have the time to do this, right? And even still, you know, reason is not perfect. It's good. Uh, it is a, a participation in God in some sense. Um, but our reason is darkened and flawed. And so sometimes we, we, we go down, uh, logical paths that ultimately are, you know, bankrupt that ultimately wind up in a, in a, in a, in a dead end, right? So God, who is love, who created the world because he wants the world to know him and love him, isn't, you know, a deistic watchmaker who winds up the world and steps away. No, God wants you to know him. And so he interacts with his creation. He's interacted over the course of time through scripture because scripture is accessible to everybody in some capacity right um anyone who can read obviously can can read it if they have access to it but but even if they can't read and most humans couldn't for most of human history even today i think most people are illiterate nevertheless they could hear and that makes it immediately understandable more or less obviously you can always dive deeper into the scriptures and, and understand more um but it's it's immediately understandable in a way that that reason simply isn't and it can reveal things of course that reason could never get to like the incarnation like the the trinity like the eucharist etc so i'm going to beg you the question here and let scripture define itself for us um we're just going to assume <laughs> that this is accurate for the time being because it's a good you know Good answer. Um, so St. Paul tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. St. Peter says that scripture comes from God as well. He says, first off, you must understand no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. Note that opening line, though, he says it's not a matter of one's own opinion or personal interpretation, right? Um, which begs the question, what's the opposite of, a, of one's own personal private interpretation? It would be a public interpretation where you're going to get public interpretation. You're going to get it from the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Um, and in fact, um, Peter warns the, the people about the abuses of scripture uh, and the abuses of private in, individuals here. Uh, when he says this in second Peter, uh, just two chapters later, he says, Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, uh, speaking of this as he does in all of his letters. There are some things in them in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware lest you be carried away by the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. And again, remember, even the devil can quote scripture. Uh, when Jesus is tempted in the, de the desert, um, the devil comes out to him and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written that he will give his angels charge of you. And on your, on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Be assured that the devil believes in God, right? Um, and the devil knows scripture significantly better than you do because he's had all of eternity to know it in a sense uh, with a, a far more advanced uh, and comprehensive intellect uh, than any of us have. Uh, but that's why we have the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth, as St. Paul calls it. Uh, and Paul tells us, in fact, that the church is given to us precisely to prevent falling into such deceit. He says this in Ephesians 4. He says his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers to equip the saints for the work of mercy, for building up the body of Christ, that is the church, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men and by their craftiness and wiles and deceitful 
deceitful wiles, right? And so literally he's saying, you know, the whole point of the church is, and he uses the word equip down here, right? Scripture is, is there, uh, to equip, uh, the man of God. Well, that's what the church is here for as well. And the church does it in a way that prevents him from being carried about by every wind of doctrine and by the cunning of men, which Peter warned us, uh, unstable men are able to twist scripture to their own destruction and to shy away from private interpretation. So all of this points towards the public interpretation of the scriptures, uh, given to us by the church being important. And with the Protestant Reformation, all of that got thrown out. Now, the, the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of sola scriptura. And in various forms, this concept basically states that all a Christian needs is the scriptures uh, and that those alone are sufficient for uh, all doctrinal issues. Uh, the scriptures are the sole source or the only source of authority. That's the sola in sol scriptura, sola scriptura, the only source of authority for the Christian faith and practice. On the face of this, this can seem like a reasonable claim, right? Scriptures are very important. So let's just, you know, make sure everything we teach comes from the scriptures on the face of it. That makes a lot of sense. And actually as Catholics, we hold a view that's very similar to this, um, but would probably be better called prima scriptura or, or scripture first. Um, as St. Thomas says, sacred doctrine properly uses the authority of the canonical scriptures as an incontrovertible proof. And then the authority of the doctors of the church uh, as one that may properly be used yet merely as probable basically saying, you know, we can quote theologians sometimes, but always quote the scriptures. For our faith rests upon our faith rests upon the revelation made to the apostles and the prophets who wrote the canonical books and not to the revelations, if there are any, made to the other doctors of the church. So again, he's saying scripture is the highest authority. Scripture being God breathed holds a primacy of place, a primacy of honor, uh, and is unique as a revelation from God. The church is guided and guarded, as we talked about last time, from teaching error, but this is more of it's a negative power. It's a preventative power. Uh, whereas revelation is more of a positive thing, right? It is a definite and given truth uh, that is being taught by the Holy Spirit. So revelation uh, in scripture is uh, utterly unique. And because of that, we, we afford it, record it the highest position, uh, right? And that's why as Catholics, we, we read scripture. The whole mass is nothing but scripture. Whenever we come together to worship, you know, we have the, the first reading and then we have a psalm and then we have a second reading and then we have an alleluia with a, a psalm, uh, versicle in it. And then we have the gospel. We actually stand for the gospel. And then all the prayers that we say, uh, the, our father, the lamb of God, the holy, holy, they're all taken from scripture. Like we, we literally, we wrap all of our worship in praying the scriptures in a sense. Um, so absolutely. Uh, scripture is very, very important. However, there's some very glaring problems with Sola. Sorry, I'm noticing a few typos. I, I had to bang this out very quickly. So I'm going to probably make a few adjustments as we go along here. Um, there's a few glaring problems with Sola Scriptura. And if you invest even a little bit of time uh, and just kind of investigate this, they're going to become uh, utterly apparent and they're going to show themselves as being utterly destructive of the very concept of Scripture, let alone of, of Sola Scriptura. Um, and the first proof, again, is this, which I already I, I alluded to at the very beginning. But if your maxim, if your, your truth, your, your guiding rubric is that Scripture is the soul authority of for the christian faith and practice then and and everything that we believe must come from scripture you must find that belief in scripture and it's not there it's just not you can search from genesis to revelation doesn't matter if it's the catholic bible or the, the protestant bible which is a little bit lighter in books uh you're not going to find that doctrine listed anywhere in scripture and in fact we'll see in a minute that it literally couldn't be like it literally uh is is antithetical to the mission, to the understanding of what scripture is. 
So on the face of it, soul scripture already fails its own test by itself not being found anywhere in scripture, right? That's like saying, you know, this sentence is false. Like that, it's a meaningless sentence because it can't be true and it can't be false. It's a nonsensical thing. Well, stating all beliefs must come from the Bible and then not being able to find that belief from the Bible is itself, it's just a tradition of men, right? And it's one that, again, sounds good. It, on the face of it, it sounds reasonable. But when you really get to the underlying part of, of what it does, you see what it does is it just divides Christians and it fractures them and factions them, right? So Sola Scriptura fails his own test. But bear in mind this as well. When Jesus was ascending into heaven, you know, he didn't shout out from the clouds. Here's a typo right here. Uh, he didn't uh, shout down from the cloud uh, a, a list of books. There we go. He didn't shout out from the cloud, a list of books to be on the lookout for. Uh, also, Paul, Peter, James, John, Mark, Luke, Jude. Uh, none of these men penned a table of contents. So this actually begs the question, how do we know what books belong in Scripture? Now, this is something I've gone into elsewhere. Uh, and, and this is actually a term, canonical sufficiency, that I, I think I've invented. Um, I don't see really anybody with Google search talking about this concept. Um, but I think it's a very, very useful concept. Um, so let's start by talking about fiction. If I were to ask you, you know, how many books from the Lord of the Rings series, you would give me the answer probably if you know that there's three, right? There's the Fellowship of the Ring, there's the Two Towers, and then there's um, the Return of the King. Now, you could also say, well, there's also supplementary material. Um, um, from the Silmarillion to the Hobbit to the Unfinished Tales and the Children of Huron and, and you know all these other related books, but the the Lord of the Rings proper, the story is just those three books. Or a little more simply, uh, you know Harry Potter or Narnia. We know that there's there's seven books in each of those stories, and the reason we know this is because each of those texts, each of those stories, had uh, a single author. And that author told us that these texts made up the narrative that they wish to tell. So we call this principle the principle of canonical sufficiency, which is to say the existence of those books is enough to explain um, what books belong in the series, right? We have a, a canonically sufficient way to understand what books belong. The word canon just means list. Um, in this case, it's not like a gun, like a, like a you know fire off the deck <laughs> cannonball ahead or whatever. Uh, it just means a list, right? So the, the canonical sufficiency of these texts exists in the author who says, well, these are the books that I want. And he very clearly orders them and gives them to us. Right. Um, and other religious texts have canonical sufficiency, even if they're, they're not inspired, we can nevertheless understand them to be canonically sufficient. So consider two, um, texts that we would as Christians consider not to be inspired. So first off the Quran, the Quran purports to be revelation uh, dictated to Muhammad by an angel. Never mind that Paul warns expressly about this in, in Galatians 1.8. eight says, you know, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Nevertheless, the status of its revelation aside, it is sufficient to explain the list of books that are in it by virtue of it being purportedly dictation. So if it is legit dictation, then it is just the link that needs to be to contain that message, right? Why is the Quran this many chapters long? Because the angel talked for that long and I wrote down everything that he said, right? So it is, even if you deny, and there's really good reasons to deny the legitimacy of the, of the Quran. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to attack another faith and I don't want to put myself in a dangerous position. Um, but let's just say this. If, if your religious book is truly given by the God who is the God of truth, then it should be able to accurately explain the faith it's trying to correct. And the claim of 
the Quran is that it's, it's the true message of Jesus, um, who didn't die. He was not really crucified. And though he was born of a virgin and, and they, they hold him in the highest regard as the highest of all prophets, even though Muhammad seems to be more, more powerful, more, more prestiged. Um, but in the fifth chapter of the Quran, it says that the Christians believe in a Trinity and the Trinity is the father, the son and Mary, the mother. <laughs> And any, any cursory knowledge of what Christians, Catholics, Orthodox, all the, the proto pre, pre-denominational church, right? Any understanding of what they believe would show you that they held Mary in high esteem as well as the other states, saints to be sure. Um, but the Trinity most explicitly is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if an angel can't even get that right, then that kind of is a, a litmus test that, well, you know, there's a, there's a real problem with this purported authority, right? Or this purported revelation. Nevertheless, it being what it is, it is sufficient to explain its own canon. Similarly, the Book of Mormon also purporting, uh, purporting to be another gospel given by another angel, which is a translation rather than a dictation from a set of golden plates purportedly found in, in, in upstate New York. They were buried under a tree and Joseph Smith finds these plates. And so the completeness of the Book of Mormon, um, is basically because all of the books that belonging to the Book of Mormon are the books that were on these golden plates that Joseph Smith is somehow able to miraculously translate by putting his head in the bag and, and dictating to, um, what's his face? I knew it off the top of my head. Shoot. I'm going to blank. Anyway, uh, the guy, he was, uh, Harris was Martin Harris. I think, um, that he was, he was dictating the, the bookstore. I might be wrong on that, but, um, and there's actually, so here, I'll, I'll address, I'll address Mormonism too, because I want you to understand I'm bringing these up. I'm not trying to convince you to become a Mormon or a Muslim. I think that they're both false gospels. Um, though they're related to the true gospel, uh, tangentially, right? They're, they're both dealing with, uh, the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac and Jacob in a roundabout way. And they both hold Jesus in high esteem, but neither one of them understands him correctly. Uh, Islam denies that he's God and Mormonism makes him just one of many, many gods in a pantheon of gods. Um, so they're both mistaken mistaken in their understanding of Jesus, right? Um, so as far as the Mormon, uh, Book of Mormon goes, here's, here's two quick proofs against it, since I gave you one for the, for the Quran. Um, first off, as Joseph Smith was translating the um, text, again, putting his face in the bag and, and just dictating, um, he's just dictating reams and reams and reams and reams of pages. And at one point, I think it's Martin Harris, I think his wife thinks that Joseph Smith is a crock. And so she steals some of the pages and says, well, go retranslate it. If, if, if you are truly translating this and not just pulling out of thin air, you should be able to retranslate that same verse. And he's not able to, but he says, well, I've got good news and bad news. The, the good news is, uh, God says, I'm not allowed to retranslate. However, there's a second book here or a third book, and it's actually an abridgment or a summary of everything I just read. So I can give you that one. So he basically summarizes everything he said, uh, in a new book. Um, and so part of the book of Mormon actually is missing. So actually that's an incomplete, it's not canonically sufficient in a sense because those pages never turned up. And, and this is all because he knew that she still had them. And if he couldn't accurately translate them, it would show that, that, that he was a fraud. Um, also if you ever Googled the, the book of Abraham, um, it was, I don't know really my exact timeline on this top of my head. I haven't just pulling this out of, out of random knowledge I have stored away. Um, 
we in the late 1800s, 1860s, uh, cracked the Rosetta Stone and were able to understand Egyptian hieroglyphics. But before that point, uh, people believed that we would never be able to read Egyptian. And at one point, Joseph Smith um, gets a copy of the, you know what, I'm just going to pull this up really quickly, um, of basically a funeral inscription um, from the, uh, this papyrus right here. And what he winds up doing is he, he finishes drawing in the parts of it. And he says, what this is, is part of a, a, a lost gospel, um, or, or a book of Abraham. And so this is Abraham sacrificing Isaac or being prepared to sacrifice Isaac. And so he, like, he draws in the parts that are missing and everything else. And he exclaims what everything else here is. And we definitely know uh, that this is not actually what this was. And these are like Egyptian gods and the body parts and, and everything else. Like we know what this is. And it's clearly just a forgery. Um, and so, I mean, the, the Mormon answer is, oh, well, he was using this as an inspiration to his, um, to the revelation, right? He looked at it and it's what gave him the inspiration to write the book of Abraham or whatever, but that's not his claim, right? Uh, Joseph Smith was a, was a shyster, was a, was a huckster. He winds up, the, the prophet winds up married to, you know, 15 women or whatever it was, 12 women, and then dies in a gunfight. Um, you know, it's just not very prophetic. So anyway, I, I have a really hard time, uh, <laughs> believing in the legitimacy of this guy. Nevertheless, because it purports to be a translation of golden plates, if it is, in fact, the legitimate translation of Golden Plates, then it is canonically sufficient to explain its length because it's just as long as it needs to be. Although, again, it's actually a little shorter because it's missing parts because some of the book was was stolen and never returned. And he wasn't allowed to retranslate this this book. Right. So it's canonically sufficient to explain its length at the end of the day. Now, while we would deny either the Book of, of Mormon or the Quran are inspired, we can see how they can explain the list of books that are in them. You know, similar to the works of fiction above, Lewis, uh, Narnia stories, uh, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, the Harry Potter series, you know, whatever it happens to be. Now, contrast all of that with the Bible. The Bible was written over the course of thousands of years by multiple authors, and many times the authors aren't even known, right? Uh, in fact, very few of the books let us know in the book itself who uh, who wrote them. And so the acknowledgement of who wrote them comes down to us from tradition, right? We call the Torah the books of Moses because it's always been called the books of Moses, right? Um, and, you know, biblical crit critical scholarship has recently in the last hundred years or so said, Oh, you know, maybe the, the Torah is actually written by four different authors. You have these four different um, styles of writing the Yahwehist and Elohimist and the er priestly and the Levitical, I think it's, there's four divisions anyway. Um, it's something I, I looked into a long time ago. I, I don't have it readily available off the top of my head. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's scriptural reasons to think maybe different people read it, but at the end of the day, we don't know, no, no, we don't have definitive proof that, that Abraham or that Moses wrote it. Um, but there's other books like that. Um, we don't know, for instance, the book of Hebrews. A lot of people suspect that it was St. Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, but we don't know. Uh, he, he signs his name to every other letter that he writes or, or dictates. Uh, some people think maybe one of the guys that was dictating for him uh, wound up taking some of his notes and turning it into a longer book, but we don't know, right? But it's in scripture, right? We don't actually know that Matthew wrote Matthew or that, that uh, you know, Luke wrote Luke, uh, Mark wrote Mark, you know, the, the very fact of, of who wrote them is itself a matter of tradition, not included in the text itself. And so the Bible 
is uniquely distinct in that by itself, it's a, it's a library, right? It's a library of texts and it is not canonically sufficient by itself to explain which books belong in it. And this is going to be very, very important. This is the biggest takeaway. So I want you to really understand this, right? How do we know what books to include in the Bible? Most people just start with an assumption that, well, the Bible is inspired, it's infallible, it's, you know, composed of exactly the books that are in the Bible and it's sitting in front of me, whether it's a Catholic Bible or a Protestant Bible, and, and they don't think beyond that. They don't stop to really understand how that book came to be. But knowing the definition of what Scripture is does not subsequently let you know how to apply that definition of scripture. Let me let me explain this in, in a different way. So um knowing that if it's scripture, then it's God breathed and inspired and infallible and inerrant and worth reading and everything else. Um, that's great. But just because I know that if it's scripture, then it's God breathed, that doesn't help me to know that, hey, this book right here, uh, this gospel of Luke or gospel of Thomas, that doesn't help me to identify whether this particular text is or is not uh, inspired. So consider this uh, side example. If you were presented with a table of mushrooms, maybe somebody gave you a poison or something, um, and they said, um, if you want to live, you have to eat one of these mushrooms. But some of these mushrooms are death cap mushrooms, and they will kill you, right? Um, so if you have the knowledge that if it's a death cap mushroom, then it will kill you, will that knowledge help you to make the right decision? No. Only if you also subsequently know how to identify whether or not any particular mushroom is, in fact, a death cap mushroom. Otherwise, the knowledge that if it's a death cap, then it will kill you, or if it's scripture, <laughs> then it's God-breathed, doesn't really matter. It's a nice definition, but it tells you nothing about the thing itself. And so this leaves us with a problem that is best described by the now late uh, Protestant pastor, R.C. Sproul, who is one of the main reasons I'm Catholic today. God rest his soul. Uh, I, I keep this man in my prayers to this day. I know he did a lot to build up the kingdom, even as a uh, as a as a Protestant. I know uh, that God can have uh, mercy and forgiveness on someone like that, and I really hope to embrace him in heaven one day. Because this little line right here, um, this this little tiny chat, this little tiny paragraph. And there's a link here if you want to follow it. It is case sensitive because they actually uh, like in your ministries is his ministry. And he's actually taken this or they've taken it down because I think that they understand that this is a problematic quote. But man, this was like the flash of light for me. He says this to put it briefly. Rome believes that the New Testament is an infallible collection of infallible books. That's one perspective. Modern critical scholarship, which rejects the infallibility of the individual volumes of Scripture, likewise, the whole of Scripture, would say that the canon of Scripture is a fallible list of fallible books. The historic Protestant position, shared by Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and so on, has been that the canon of Scripture is a fallible collection of infallible books. Think about that. What good does it do if you know that scripture is inspired by God, if you can't know that any of these books are or are not scripture? Again, in that example above, if you know that a death cap mushroom is poisonous, uh, but you couldn't identify whether any particular mushroom was a death cap mushroom, you'd be taking your natural life in your hands with every single bite. So too with scripture, which prepares us for divine life. You take your hands, you take your divine life into your own hands with every book that you choose to read and treat as though it is the word of God. If you don't in fact know that it is the word of God, if you can't know what books belong in scripture, then what you have is at best good spiritual reading on par with maybe St. Augustine's Confessions, and at worst contains errors that could lead you to eternal damnation.
Think about that. So as Pastor R.C. Sproul pointed out above, apart from the church, whether he meant to or not, I would say he pointed out unintentionally. (laughs) Apart from the church, there is no solid ground with which to proclaim that these books definitively belong in Scripture. And that's a big problem for any Bible-believing Christian. That's the takeaway. If I could stop right there, I want to keep going. But if we stop right there, that's the lesson. The simple fact is the canon of the scriptures must be, by definition, extra biblical. And that shows that there must be some other authority out there that can give us this knowledge. And that body that can give us that knowledge would rightly be considered the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And that's what history records. For the first 350 years of Christianity, the church existed without any defined list of books because the church came first and was sufficient to a large extent. But the writings did happen, and they were inspired by God, and it's not the church declaring them to be inspired that makes them inspired. The church recognizes them as being inspired, uh, and so that we can, in good conscience, say, yes, okay, these books are inspired, right? That's how we know, because the church has the authority to bind and to loose. And if they have that authority, then you ought not to separate from the entity that has that authority, or you're taking your own salvation into your own hands. This is exactly what the church did. And, and initially, the, the first canon we have a record of came from a heretic named Marcion. And he was anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews. He made his own gospel, uh, which he cut out everything. He left out everything about the Jews. It was basically like an edited version, I think, of Mark. Um, he had a canon that was pretty much just Paul's letters. And even those were redacted to remove any references to the Jews because he was an anti-Semite. And so the church says, okay, we need to clarify uh, you know, what scriptures are, are allowed to be used. And so the very first clarification came at the Council of Rome in 382. Subsequently, the Council of Hippo in 393, the Council of Carthage in 397, uh, a letter from Pope Innocent I in 405, the Council of Carthage in 419, Nicaea, Second Nicaea in 787, uh, which approves the results of Council of Carthage, Florence in 1482, or sorry, 1442, and then Trent. Trent actually sets it down dogmatically and makes the formal, formal, formal definition or declaration. Uh, and this is actually in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, and this is just how the church operates, right? The church isn't going to set about and just make up rules willy-nilly for people. It only definitively defines or dogmatically defines things once they become challenged. So um, the the concept of transubstantiation we'll talk about down the road um, wasn't formally defined till the 13th century because it wasn't until uh, was Baron Garius, I think was his name, uh, was a heretic who basically denied the, the real presence and, and caused quite a stir in the church says, okay, we need to actually settle this. And so the church says, this is a change of substance. It is no longer wine and bread. It is the body and blood of Jesus because Jesus said so. And so it tries to give a, a very basic explanation, which again, we'll talk about down the road. All right. But that's how the church operates, right? The church doesn't just set out to make rules arbitrarily. It sets out to protect the truth when it needs to happen. And of course, Vatican I and Vatican II also did as well. Uh, there's a link here that talks about all the different church councils throughout the history of the world and how they've each subsequently approved the same list of books. But it's the same list from from 382 uh, all the way down to to Vatican II. It's the same list of books and it's identical to the list of books that we have in the Catholic Bible. So either this church, this church with its apostolic succession and its bishops and its priests and its deacons and its belief in the real presence and its self-described being Catholicness, either this church had the authority and thus we have an infallible canon or else the church did not have this authority, in which case we are stuck with pastor Sproul above and we don't have a Bible. That's the decision set before the Christian. Whether they are aware of it or not, to trust this tradition of the church as being infallible or not, that is the decision that you have to make. So what books do belong? 
Well, that depends first off whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. The Old Testament was composed over the course of many, many hundreds, actually probably over a thousand to, to almost 2000 years. And it's made up of a number of different kinds of literature from history, boring military statistics, genealogies, poetry, and even fiction. Uh, it was written by a vast number of authors. Um, and oftentimes, again, the authorship itself is not recorded, um, but that comes down to us through tradition. And they were kept usually at the temple. They were read by the priests. And this is important. At the time of Jesus, there was not a set canon of the Old Testament. There wasn't a defined list of books. Some groups accepted more books. Some groups excluded all but a very few. The Sadducees, who denied the resurrection, and that's sad, you see. That's how you can always remember who they are. <laughs> that's a Sunday school um, Bible learning coming out right there. The Sadducees were one of the leading groups at the time. They were very, very austere, very, very holy people. They had a very limited canon. They basically accepted just the Torah of Moses. They didn't accept anything beyond the five books of Moses, the the, the Pentateuch. Uh, others, like the, the Pharisees, uh, seem to have included a lot more of the scripture um, including pretty much the, the entire set that are accepted in, in the, uh, the Protestant uh, Old Testament. Um, meanwhile, we have the, the version that, that, that Jesus and his followers used called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and it's called the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see it abbreviated the LXX, which is just Latin or um, it's Latin for, for 70, right? That's how you count. Um, owing to this, you know, fabled, group of 70 scholars that came together to, to work on, on, uh, on the translation, uh, translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And it has a much more filled out canon. Um, and in fact, what's really neat about the Septuagint is I was listening to a couple of people talk about this. And as far as I know, this was the very first time we really see an intense interest in translating religious text period. Um, and every other faith that ever existed, if you wanted to get into that religion, you had to speak the language it was written in. And the Septuagint is utterly unique, um, in that it was trying to take the truths of the Hebrew canon and make them accessible to the world at large by putting them into one of the most widely spoken languages at the time, Greek. The Old Testament was composed principally in Hebrew. Um, there were some portions of Dan that were in Aramaic. Um, and then, of course, a lot of the Deuterocanonicals, uh, which are the books we have in the Catholic Bible that aren't in the, in the Protestant Bibles, uh, were written in Greek, though we've actually found uh, Hebrew versions of almost all of them at, at this point, other than, I think, Second Maccabees. Um, what was the other one? Uh I think we, I think, I think it might just be portions of Second Maccabees. Um, and actually it's, it's portions of Esther and Daniel. I don't think we found Hebrew originals for those, but for instance, the, the portions in Esther that are in Greek are the ones that talk about God. Otherwise that entire book doesn't even mention God. In fact, for that very reason, a lot of, uh, Hebrew canons or, or, or suggested sets of readings didn't include it because it didn't seem like it was, um, I guess topical. It didn't talk about God. Um, Anyway, so those seven books, they're in Catholic Bibles, they're in Orthodox Bibles, and Catholics make up well over half of Christians by themselves, let alone with their Orthodox brothers. It's like 1.6 billion people uh, whose Bibles include that. And then you have another, uh, you know, 600 million Protestants or so who use a, a slightly more abbreviated canon similar to the, the Pharisees canon above. So these books, these seven books, most of them were believed to have been penned between uh, 500 BC and, and 200 BC, whether or not there's a, a Greek original that exists is debatable, but again, it's been found for most of them. Um, 
What I find fascinating, and this is just kind of an aside here, um, but the, the Septuagint made a number of changes to the Hebrew text, and those changes were quoted by Christ. They're quoted by the Holy Spirit who inspires the, the New Testament. 90% of the quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament come not from the Hebrew versions, but from the Septuagint, from the Greek versions. Uh, one big example is um, the famous... Um, uh, prophecy of Isaiah, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In Hebrew, it just says a young woman. Um, I forget the word. It's like Alma, I think is, there's a word for, for young woman. And, um, you know, that would just imply any young woman would wind up having, you know, a child. But partenos, uh, is the word in, in Greek and it explicitly, explicitly, explicitly means a virgin. And when Matthew quotes Isaiah, he quotes this, um, he quotes this telling of it to, to emphasize what it was underscoring. And it was underscoring the fact that Mary would be a virgin. It would be a virginal conception. It would not be a conception in the normal course of things. And I mean, again, this was foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis 3.16, the seed of the woman, right? Um, so it's not like this is a new thing, but literally the Holy Spirit is preferring through, through Matthew, uh, is preferring this Greek version. Uh, thus, in answer to the famous question of Tertullian, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? The fact that the Holy Spirit seems to have favored Greek in translations and in the entire New Testament is kind of telling. <laughs> Moreover, the Septuagint also contained the Deuterocanonical text again. Um, we can even see the Deuterocanonical text being quoted in a couple places in the New Testament. For instance, Hebrews 11 gives us, it's like the Hall of Fame of the Old Testament, and every single person it mentions from, from Abraham all the way down um, has a direct corollary to the Old Testament. And you can find every single person referenced in Hebrews 11 in either the Catholic or the Protestant Old Testament, with the exception of one line, and that's in Hebrews 11.35. And it says this, people were tortured and refused release for the sake of a better re resurrection. And you can search from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, you will not find anywhere in the Old Testament, anybody in the Protestant Old Testament being tortured and refusing to accept release for the sake of a better resurrection. You're only going to find that in the book of Maccabees. We actually, literally, this was the reading in mass like last week, and I was the lector, which is kind of neat. Um, but this is, uh, it's kind of a gruesome, it's kind of a gruesome read, but it's kind of neat. You should look it up, whether you're Protestant or Catholic, go, go Google second Maccabees seven and just read it. Cause it's, it's intense. It's like a, a mother and her seven sons. Uh, and they all, uh, one after another are, are tortured and, you know, sneering in the face of, uh, of those who are persecuting them saying, you know, God took, God gave these to me. I freely give them back. Uh, and I know that he will restore them in the resurrection. So literally it's the only place you see it. So when Hebrews quotes that story, it's quoting second Maccabees. Also the Sadducees, remember they only believed in the Torah, the five books of Moses, and, and they denied the resurrection. They come to Jesus and they bring him a twofold challenge. Um, and so we read this the same day, the Sadducees came to him. Uh, they who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. After all of them, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, to which of the seven will she be wife? For they all had her. This is a good question. I mean, a lot of times the Sadducees are presented as being kind of sneering and, and snide. But honestly, this is this is a good problem to have. Like, like how, how do we understand that? Right. And, you know, is, is she going to be in this weird polyamorous relationship in, in heaven? You know, how, how do you answer that question? And, and Jesus 
we'll see subsequently gives her, gives him a great, great answer. He says, you know, in heaven, they're neither married nor given marriage the way that they are in this life. But what's really telling is this. First off, um, this story of a woman married to seven brothers in sequence is the story of Tobit. That is, this is the entire setup of the book of Tobit. And so they are, they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, Hey, you teach this resurrection nonsense. You also accept this nonsensical book. And I can, we can prove to you the nonsense of the resurrection through your acceptance of this stupid book. And so here's a problem. So they're posing him a problem from the book of Tobit to deny the resurrection. Of course, Jesus answers them. But what's really interesting is Jesus answers them using only the Torah. There's some really, really, I'll jump down here really quickly. Um, there's some really strong language in Daniel. Uh, many of those who sleep in the dusty earth will awake to some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah, the dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who are in the dust uh, shall awake and sing for joy. Uh, the earth will give birth to the dead. So literally, these passages are very, very clearly speaking about um, the resurrection, but they wouldn't accept these. So Jesus answers them from the Torah, and he gives this line um, here. He says, um, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, which means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. And when the crowd hears this, they're astonished at his teaching. Because just like when they catch the woman in adultery and they, they bring him, bring her to, to, to Jesus, the only time Jesus ever wrote anything, by the way, um, we don't even know it was, he spins down and writes in the sand. Um, but he answers their question in a way that blows their mind and shows that they weren't, they didn't even understand the question they asked, which always reminds me of that, that famous passage from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when the computer takes forever and ever and ever to finally come up with the meaning of life. And the answer is 42. And the, the problem is we didn't understand the question. Well, in this case, they didn't understand the question that they were even asking, right? They didn't understand the nature of the, of the resurrection. So Jesus shows them, uh, their ignorance and he shows it to them using a scripture that they would understand using, um, using the, the Torah rather than a, a more uh, pronounced version. He says, you know, this was only back in Moses. You can find this if you would just listen, but you guys refuse to listen to the truth. Right. Um, but of course they didn't accept, the they didn't recognize the authorities, which is why of these texts, which is why he uses what he does. Meanwhile. So moving on the new Testament, as opposed to the Old Testament, is comprised of the 27 books that you're familiar with, written in part by the apostles and also those that work with them. Uh, some of those were accepted almost immediately. Uh, and others only after some discussion, uh, look at the book of Hebrews, the book of revelation. Uh, some people doubted second Peter, some people doubted, um, the epistle of Jude. Um, there were a couple others that were not widely received, uh, early on, but they were eventually discerned as being part of scripture. Meanwhile, there were other scriptures that were received widely treated, uh, as though they might be revelation. Um, they were read liturgically. The shepherd of Hermas is one of them. Clement's epistle. Um, the Didache is another one. It's like the, the, the teaching of the apostles. That's like the, the first catechism from like the seventies, 70 AD. Um, and the church ultimately said, no, these are, these are not inspired, even if they're good, right? They're still useful, uh, historical documentation. So by the end of the first century, there were hundreds of letters and gospels written and very few of any of these ever claimed to be scriptural. Ironically, the only one in the, the, one of the only ones in the new Testament that claims to be scripture is the book of revelation, where John says, the Lord appeared to me and says, write this down. And that was one of the few books that people were like, ah, I don't know about this one. <laughs> right. Uh, so isn't it ironic that the one that really claims to be revelation, uh, even in the title that we often give to it, um, is itself one that was, that was doubted. Right. Um, 
yet many of them were nevertheless, they were received universally by the church, um, or very, very widely. The four gospels, um, almost immediately were accepted and read liturgically, uh, passed around along with the names that went along with them since the names weren't in the text themselves. Um, you know, but ultimately it's a tradition and you're, you're trusting the tradition of these people who, who accepted them either to be correct or not to, not to be correct, right? You either have a definitive knowledge of this or you don't. And so at this point, I usually like to turn things around a little bit. I like to say, you know, imagine that you were faced with a handful of documents. How would you know which ones were inspired and which one wasn't or which ones weren't? So here we can play a pop quiz. So if you want to take out a piece of paper, um, I would love to know if anyone gets this 100% right. Uh, don't pause this and Google it. Just answer it on the fly. But this is a little scripture test that I put together for my classes. Um, I used to say the year is uh, 150 AD. There'll be one in here that's uh, one or two in here that's a little bit cheating. It's a little past that date. But uh, you know the idea is there, there's no formal canon. The writings uh, claimed by some as being scriptures are brought to you. And you have to make a decision as to whether or not these are scripture or not. So let's take a look here and see what we got. Um, since then we are a holy portion, we should do everything that makes for holiness. We should flee from slandering, vile and pure embraces, drunkenness, writing, filthy lust, detestable adultery, and disgusting arrogance. Scripture or not scripture? That is from St. Clement of Rome, the first or the fourth bishop of Rome, so the fourth pope. B. The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ was sent from God. Thus, Christ is from God and the apostles from Christ. In both instances, the orderly procedure depends on God's will. Scripture or not scripture? I'll just give the answer in about one second after each one of these because there's a number of them here. Um, feel free to pause it and think for a minute, um, but keep track because I would love to know. In fact, uh, if you if you've made it this far and you're doing this down below um, in the comments, leave leave your score. So this is out of I think there's 17 here. So there's a fair number of little passages that I give you. Um, anyway, this is uh, not scripture as well. This is uh, Clement again. C. Be deaf then to any talk that ignores Jesus Christ of David's lineage, of Mary, who was really born, ate, and drank, who was really persecuted under Pontius Pilate, who was really crucified and died in the sight of heaven and the earth and the underworld. He was really raised from the dead. Scripture or not scripture? That is Ignatius of Antioch. D. Since you are children of the light of truth, flee from schism and false doctrine. Where the shepherd is, there follow like sheep. For there are many specious wolves who, by means of wicked pleasures, capture those who run God's race. Scripture or not scripture? That's again, St. Ignatius. E. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. Is that scripture or not scripture? That is the bulk of the letter of Paul uh, called Philemon. F, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Is that scripture or not scripture? That comes from the book of Hebrews. G, 
Even after the resurrection, he was in the flesh. When he came to Peter and his friends, these typos are my fault, he said to them, Take hold of me, touch me, see that I am not a bodily, bodily-less ghost. For this reason, they despised death itself and proved its victors. After the resurrection, he ate and drank with them as a real human being, although in his spirit he was united with the Father. Scripture or not scripture? That is again St. Ignatius of Antioch. H. But after the Lord established this holy gift, and a man be tempted by the devil, he has but one repentance. It is unprofitable, therefore, for such a man to sin and repent repeatedly, for scarcely shall he live. Scripture or not scripture? That is a text that was widely received called the Shepherd of Hermas, but it is not scripture. When he enters your heart, he speaks to you of purity, reverence, self-control, and virtue. When these things come into your heart and good deeds flow from them, you know that the angel of righteousness is within you. Scripture, not scripture. That is not scripture. Again, it is the shepherd of Hermas. Jesus said, "Man, as the man is like a wise fisherman who has cast his net into the sea. Again, typos are all my fault. And drew it up from the sea full of small fish. Among the fish, the wise fisherman found a fine large fish. And he threw all the small fish back into the sea and chose the large fish without difficulty. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Scripture or not scripture? This is not scripture. And this actually comes from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Okay. Uh, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions. Is that scripture or not scripture? That is scripture. That comes from Luke 12. Um... To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name and that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Scripture? Not scripture? That is from the book of Revelation, which starts with actually like seven letters to seven different churches. Uh, the, the giveaway is to the angel of the church in Sardis, because it's like to the angel in the church of Philadelphia and the Philippians and all the other places. M, uh, for the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then to have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Scripture or not scripture? That again comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, so it's scripture. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life, give life to, to him, to those who commit sin that does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Scripture? Not scripture. This comes from the first epistle of John, chapter 5, which is actually where we get the distinction between mortal and venial sins. Uh, not all sin is deadly sin that completely kills the grace and charity and the love of God in the heart. Uh, all sin is damaging, uh, but not all sin is deadly. 
Oh, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a certain woman who was carrying a jar full of meal. And while she was walking on the road, still some distance from home, he, the handle of the jar broke and the meal was slowly emptied out on the road behind her. She did not realize it. She noticed no accident. And when she reached her house, she set the jar down and found it empty. Scripture or not scripture? This one comes from our good friend, the gospel of Thomas. So not scripture. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, use wicked wealth to make friends for yourself. Then when it's gone, you will be welcomed into an eternal home. Scripture or not scripture. This is one that throws most people off because this is words of Jesus himself in scripture from Luke uh, chapter 16 uh, is actually a reading from mass just a few weeks ago. In fact, um, and basically what he's saying is it, this is the parable of the dishonest steward who takes all of the accounts of his master and basically cuts him in half so that when the master fires him, he'll have somewhere to go and people take care of him. And the master in fact applauds him for his craftiness though. He catches him. So I'm imagining uh, he ended up not losing anything, but applauded the, the prudence of the steward. But the, the underlying parable here seems to be that everything just, just like he was using things that weren't his to gain in life. So in a sense, kind of the stoic notion, everything we have in this life is not ours. And so give what you have as much as you can, because it's not yours. You can't take it with you anyway. Uh, but the more you give, you're, you're storing up treasure in heaven, right? Give freely and, and use dishonest or stolen goods, stolen wealth, which is to say stuff that's not really yours, because uh, nothing is yours in order to build up the kingdom. That's really the, the lesson there. Lastly, this one, behold, God said, oh, Jesus, I will take thee and raise thee to myself and clear thee of falsehoods of those who blaspheme. I will make those who follow thee superior to those who reject faith to the day of the resurrection. And then ye shall all return to me and I will judge between you of the matters wherein ye dispute scripture or not scripture. This one was me being a little unfair because <laughs> uh, this one is definitely well after 150 AD. This is around uh, 630. This comes from the Quran uh, 335, which talks a lot about Jesus. Um, so total up out of 17, how many you got right? And let me know down below, you know, six slash 17, five slash 17. You know, let me know how many you got right. I've never had anyone get 100% on this test. And I've even had people who are professors of theology take it. That doesn't mean somebody wouldn't get 100%. And the the thing is, if you get 100%, even that proves the point. Uh, and it's not that you can instinctively recognize all scripture, but rather you have a familiarity with scripture and that familiarity allowed you to understand, well, this is scripture or that doesn't sound right. Right. But if you were in 100 AD and you didn't have a canon of the scriptures, you would have a much harder time doing exactly that. And that's the point, right? I guarantee most of you accepted some false gospels and some false letters in there, and you probably threw out some canonical texts as well. And that's because the canonicity of a text is not determined by subjective feelings, but again, is safeguarded by the objectively knowable tradition of the church guided by the Holy Spirit. This is part of the promise of Christ. When he says he comes to give us the truth and the truth will set us free. But it's not just an understanding uh, of what texts belong in scripture, but also having a safe guideline for reading and interpreting those scriptures. The founding fathers, and again, I don't have my, I just had it. <laughs> I don't have my um, pocket um, 
constitution up here, but the constitution is a tiny, tiny document. You know, it can fit in your back pocket easily with notes and everything appended to it. The founding fathers understood that that tiny document that they gave us, the constitution of the United States would be so contentious of a document that they set up in it a guide to help us in our day-to-day lives here in the secular order, uh, knowing that there'd be disputes about what it means and how to interpret it. So they wrote into it an interpretive body of law or interpretive body to help us understand what the scriptures mean, or sorry, what the constitution means and what interpretations are correct. I guess I should say the Supreme court. That's the whole point of the judiciary is to help us understand if we're understanding this tiny little document correctly. Now, this doesn't mean that the church has a definitive statement about every single verse of scripture. This doesn't mean that the Supreme Court is is infallible in its decisions about how to interpret the Constitution. But it, it does mean that we understand that the church necessarily has to be able to give guidelines as to what is a valid interpretation um, that we're putting forward, um, lest we put forward something that borders on or even crosses over into heresy. And so I give this example, and I've, I've given this before as well. I got this from Steve Ray. He's a great guy. Um, consider the sentence. I'm going to, I'm going to let you look at this for a minute. It says, I never said you stole his money. If I wrote this down, I put it on a piece of paper and I, I handed it to you. And I said, do you understand what that means? You probably would say, yeah, yeah, I understand what that means. You don't, you do not know what this one sentence in English means. And I can prove it to you right now. Cause it could mean I never said you stole his money, which means, you know, maybe somebody else did. I can say, I never said you stole his money, which means I'm adamantly denying that anyone could ever make the claim that I said you stole his money. I can say, I never said you stole his money, but I sure might have implied it or written it down. Uh, I never said you stole his money. You know, maybe it was that guy over there. I never said you stole his money. Maybe you accidentally walked off with it. Maybe you mismanaged the funds and lost it, right? I never said you stole his money. But hers over there, you stole that. I never said you stole his money. Maybe you stole his car. <laughs> you stole his cat, uh, you know, his wife, <laughs> whatever it happens to be. Maybe something of, of greater value than, than money, right? So this one stupid little sentence has so many possible interpretations. And simply upon reading it, you cannot understand what it means. One tiny little document this big is so contentious that for hundreds of years we've been fighting over what it means. How much more so, if one little sentence can be so problematic, how much more so a giant collection of books and letters written thousands of years ago in languages that you don't speak, probably, if you do, cool. Imagine the difficulty of trying to run a nuclear power plant with two or 3,000 page manual written in languages you don't read. This could be a life or death situation. If you mess it up, boom, millions of people could die. You know, a life or death situation based on something you can't read and you can't understand. If Jesus came to give us the truth because the truth would set us free and he simply merely left us with a text. Sorry. If he merely left us with a text, that seems like he didn't do a very good job because wherever you have two or three gathered in his name and you have a disagreement about how to understand scripture, there you have two or three new denominations. And that's a shame. Again, uh, in the last class, we talked about factioning and how that was never a part of the plan. Uh, it is uh, antithetical to the gospel, to the church. And the oneness that Jesus prayed that the church would have, right? 
So what happens when we have a disagreement about scripture? Again, I've, I've talked to and listened to conversations from uh, Protestant pastors who became Catholic in part because they just kept seeing that their churches would split and split and splinter and split whenever they came to something they, they couldn't come to an agreement on. And again, Paul is clear that factioning, divisioning, denominations were never part of the plan, right? He gives the example, you know, don't say I belong to Peter or to Paul or to Apollos or to Jesus, <laughs> right? You belong to the church is his whole point. And that was one more of a, a matter of pride. People were saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Peter. I was baptized by Apollos or whatever. And this is one of the, one of the two times that Peter isn't listed first, but he's actually listed uh, Paul. Paul always lists himself first here because Paul views himself as the least of the apostles. He says this all the time. So he says, don't say Paul. And then he gives like somebody who's just an average apostle, like Apollos. And then he gives Peter and then he gives Jesus, right? So Jesus comes right after Peter. Peter comes right before Jesus. So there you have like this ascending ladder of, of greatness, right? And he says, don't, don't, don't say you belong to any one of these people, right? Um, so, so you're not a Pauline Catholic, you know, you're not a Petrine Catholic in a sense. Now we, we follow Peter. He is the Pope. Um, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about, you know, factioning and trying to follow the teachings only of one person or whatever. And so, you have that in, in, um, in Protestantism, right? You have Lutheranism, you have Calvinism, you have Wesleyanism, uh, you have your, your, your Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, Baptist, Reformed, Methodism, Episcopalian, Mormon, Pentecostal, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, uh, you know, there's just generic non-denominational, right? You have so many different factions, many of them named after the person whose teachings they are in fact following, whereas the church continues to simply call itself the Catholic single universal church. And that's a problem, right? That breaks what it means to be Christian. Here's a few more words on the impracticality of Sola Scriptura. Um, Sola Scriptura simply doesn't make sense as we've already discussed. It's not found in scripture itself. Um, so it fails its own test right off the bat. And it can't account for how you even have the scriptures because the scriptures require an extra scriptural authority to know what books belong in it. But it also makes us a couple assumptions that are anachronistic at best, which means they're ripped out of history and don't make sense in historical context. First off, Sola Scriptura assumes that Christians have always had access to a Bible, particularly to a complete Bible with all 66 or 73, whichever one, <laughs> uh, number of books. They haven't. In fact, for the first 20 or 30 years, there weren't any New Testament writings, and yet the church lived and grew at that time. Um, Bibles were also expensive. Gutenberg's printing press drove down the cost of owning books, but for most of human history, being handwritten books were considered luxury items that would cost years and years and years worth of wages to afford even a small tome, right? Because usually if they're written on papyrus, that's not going to last. Uh, and if they're written on lambskin, then, you know, each few pages of scripture is a lamb, which, which is not cheap in and of itself, let alone the binding and the writing and the stretching and the, the tanning and you know, everything else that you'd have to do to make the vellum. Uh, that you, uh, that you would write on that would last a little bit longer than paper. But even still, um, you know, being very, very expensive, whatever it was made out of in a, in a world without climate control and a world without windows, your investment of years and years and years of wages for a single book, let alone a whole Bible, uh, would be destroyed probably in a generation or two. You might be able to pass it on to your kids, but you almost certainly wouldn't be able to pass it on to your grandkids, uh, if you just lived in an average home. 
uh, being very expensive and very hard to care for. They were very hard to find. You couldn't just go to the local Barnes and Noble. And generally, if you wanted a book, you had to already have the book and you had to find someone who could make a copy of it for you. Um, and of course, you, you had to find a copy that was in your own language as well. And uh, if you didn't speak Greek for the longest time, there weren't any other versions. It was uh, the Vulgate, Jerome's Vulgate, that first made it more popular, available in the lingua franca of the time, which, of course, was uh, was Latin. Uh, and, but even then there, the, the idea of, of the translations is something that just, it took a long time to actually happen. So you couldn't just, you know, go to Bible gateway and select your language the way you can today. And that's, that's a good thing, right? The, the, that Bible gateway and those other websites and stuff exist. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. But that's just not the way of the world. And lastly, uh, being hard to find, hard to care for, very expensive, uh, you know, assuming everyone has access to these, chances are, like most people around you, you were probably illiterate. For most of human history, 99% of the people have been illiterate. They couldn't read. And so um, even if you could afford one and find one and keep it, you probably couldn't use it because you were illiterate. But you could go to the, to the churches and hear it being proclaimed and read whenever you celebrated a mass. And again, of course, all of that even assumes that you know what books belong in scripture, which we've already established. You can't know without some extra biblical authority that is itself infallible. And remember, the New Testament itself never even says, it never even says you need a New Testament. Jesus never says write anything, right? And yet, in spite of all of this, the church has dedicated so much of her time and energy to preserving and teaching the scriptures, making sure to read them out loud and proclaim them to congregations when they meet at worship, etc. All right. So how reliable are these texts? This is something that this is kind of taking a, a, a sidestep from where we've been going. Um, people will sometimes criticize the scriptures and say, well, they're not reliable. How do you know that they weren't changed over time and everything else? And Here's a, a quick note on the reliability just of the New Testament Gospels. This is from uh, Ted Shree, who teaches, is a fellow, I guess, out of the Augustine Institute, I think, right now. I knew him back when he was just Professor Shree, teaching at Benedictine College many, many years ago. Um, my wife actually used to house it for him. <laughs> and he said this, The New Testament Gospels are the most historically reliable texts from antiquity that we have. We have over 5,000 individual manuscripts in different languages from different regions, all agreeing on 99% of what they say, the varying less than 1% dealing with minor word choice or word order. All of them were penned within 20 to 150 years of each other, uh, the, the existing copies that we have, and the originals we have record of existing less than 50 years after the events that they witnessed to. The next best attested classical manuscript that we have is Homer's Iliad. We have 650 existing copies that date from the 3rd century AD forward, nearly a millennia away from when Homer would have spun his tale. And they agree in about 80% of the detail from there. The New Testament has not only more, more surviving manuscripts than any other work of antiquity, but they agree to such a degree that we can say that they are 99.5% pure. If the New Testament writings are not trustworthy, then neither is the Iliad, nor anything by Livy, or Cicero, or Plato, or Aristotle, and we should disband all of the classics departments at all of the colleges in the world for teaching historically unreliable matters. So that's scripture. Now, scripture, as we can see, comes out of tradition. So what is tradition? I'm just going to let the church handle this. I'm going to give you what the catechism says. Tradition is essentially the collective teaching and understanding of the Catholic Church throughout the ages. 
Christ the Lord, says Catechism paragraph 75, in whom the entire revelation of the Most High God is summed up, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, which had been promised beforehand by the prophets, and which he fulfilled in his own person and promulgated with his own lips. In preaching the gospel, they were to communicate the gifts of God to all men. This gospel was to be the source of all saving truth and moral discipline. This truth was passed on in apostolic preaching. In keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel is handing on in two ways. Orally, by the apostles who handed on, by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And also in writing, by those apostles and other men associated with apostles who, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing. And it was continued in apostolic succession. In order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors, and they gave them their own position of teaching authority. Indeed, the apostolic preaching, which is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, was to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. This living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition, since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Through tradition, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes. The sayings of the Holy Fathers are a witness to the life-giving presence of this tradition, showing how its riches are poured out in the practice and life of the church, in her belief, and in her prayer. This tradition does not refer to legends or mythological accounts, nor does it refer to transitory customs or practices which may change as circumstances warrant, such as the styles of priestly dress, the particular forms of devotion to saints, or even liturgical rubrics like what language the mass is set in, or you know what vestments the priests wear, or even whether priests take a vow of celibacy. Those are all what we call, I would call, lowercase t traditions. Those are things that can change depending upon the need of the people. The tradition here in question comes from the apostles and hands on what they received from Jesus' teaching and example, what they learned from the Holy Spirit. The first generation of Christians did not yet have a written New Testament, and the New Testament itself demonstrates the process of living tradition. Tradition is to be distinguished from the various theological, disciplinary, liturgical, or devotional traditions born in the local churches over time. These are the particular forms adapted to different places and times in which the great tradition is expressed. In the light of tradition, these traditions can be retained, modified, or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. So sacred or apostolic tradition consists of the teaching of the apostles passed on orally through their preachings and also in their writings. These teachings largely probably overlap, uh, maybe even entirely overlap with what's contained in scripture, uh, but the mode of their transmission is different. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, whoever listens to you or hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. So he's speaking not about whoever reads what you write, but literally whoever hears you, hears me. Paul says this, I command, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, he says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, either by word of mouth or by letter. And so there we see a very clear reference uh, to the idea of traditions by or by word of mouth. And they were binding, right? Stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, either by word of mouth or by letter. And then he says, uh, as well to the, in the same text, uh, next chapter, he says, um, 
Now then we commend you or we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So Paul speaks very highly uh, of tradition, and Jesus himself references this idea of people following the apostles and hearing them. And if they hear the apostles, then they hear Jesus himself. And you either take Jesus at his word here or you don't. And if you don't, you don't have much in the way of Christian faith. Two final thoughts. These are two of my favorite quotes, and this will be the end of this long video. Um, first off, we have a quote from Augustine from the literal interpretation of Genesis. This is talking about how we understand what the Bible teaches. And one of the things I didn't get to point out uh, when I talked about creation, you know, there's a big discussion about creation and evolution and, uh, you know, whether Christians can believe in evolution or not. Um, and Augustine's point is that we should be careful not to distinguish or not to not to blur the lines uh, or or misunderstand truths of faith and truths of the world around us because they're not in contradiction. Truth, the God who made Scripture and wrote Scripture, is the God who made the world around us. He made the laws of nature, and so truth never contradicts truth. So the world we see around us, uh, all of the truths that we can glean from that world, point towards God, no matter what people say they, they they think that they point to. They always point to God and they don't contradict the faith. What it can show us sometimes if we don't understand things initially or we think we find a discrepancy, we either have uh, a misunderstanding of the science or we have a misunderstanding of what we thought the, the theology taught, right? And so he says this, talking about the little interpretation of Genesis. St. Augustine writes, it not infrequently happens that something about the earth, about the sky, about the other elements of this world, about the motion and the rotation or the magnitude and distances of the stars, about definite eclipses of the sun and the moon, about the passage of years and seasons, about the nature of animals, of fruits, of stones, and other such things may be known with the greatest certainty by reasoning or by experience, even by one who's not a Christian. And it is too disgraceful and ruinous, though, and greatly to be avoided that he, the non-Christian, should hear a Christian speaking so idiotically on these matters, as if in accord with Christian writings, that he might scarcely be able to keep from laughing when he saw how totally in error they were. In view of this, and in keeping in mind constantly when dealing with the book of Genesis, I have, in so far as I've been able to, explained in detail and set forth for consideration the meaning of obscure passages, taking care not to affirm rashly some one meaning to the prejudice of another and perhaps better explanation. And so here we see a good guiding principle for understanding scripture itself. And certainly you can come to personal interpretations, but make sure those personal interpretations, first off, you know, if they're really just your interpretation, you're not infallible, right? So, so be open to correction. Um, and understand, you know, again, there's a lot of Christians out there who, who teach things about science that make people who don't believe in, in Christianity cringe and make them think, well, if this is what Christians teach, then I don't want anything to do with that because most scientists don't actually have an agenda the way that most of those particular types of Christians think that they do, right? They're not out there trying to overthrow uh, God. They're simply saying, I'm looking at astrological data and I'm drawing some conclusions about the age of the world or the rotation of the stars, um, the, the roundness of the earth. Um, that's a big one these days. There's a guy who has this whole like, you know, 200 proofs from the Bible that the earth is flat or whatever. And, you know, I think that actually, in the, I, I appreciate his, his zeal, but he's actually making the faith seem silly to most people. And we want to be careful about that. That's really Augustine's point. And then lastly, a quote from, from Chesterton, good old GK Chesterton. He says this tradition. Tradition means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. 
tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he's our groom. Tradition tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he's our father. And I like that. The idea that tradition is the democracy of the dead. Tradition listens to the voices of those that came before us and says, you know what? They probably weren't idiots. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go ahead and end this here. This was a much longer class uh, than I was expecting and my voice is about to give out. I hope you found this helpful. If you have any questions, leave them down below and do leave your score uh, down below as well. I'd love to know how you did. Uh, I scored a hundred out of a hundred, but I wrote the test. <laughs> and if somebody were to make a similar test, I'm sure I wouldn't pass it. Um, let me know if you have any questions. Otherwise, um, next week I will, um, I will be shooting my older notes probably on heaven, hell, and all stops in between. We'll be talking about the saints and everything else. And then I have the class already recorded on Mary that would come after that, which you can actually already watch. So let me know if you have any questions. Otherwise, God bless you.